Hey everybody, I'm Craig Hanson, the founder of the University of Applied Research and Development, and this is our emergency management videocast. I'm delighted to have Casey Campbell with us. Hey Casey. Hi, how are you doing? Nice to meet you, Craig. I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm glad that you could make it and be here with us this morning. Um, what time of the day is it where you are? It is uh, going on it's, uh, about uh, 12 till 3 p.m. here. So um, in the D.C. area, it's a, a nice, sunny, brisk, but sunny afternoon. Awesome. Well, this is an international video cast. I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. We're still in a, a sense of lockdown. It's now mm -hmm. 10 minutes to eight in the morning, and it's great that we can connect internationally. And I'd love for you to share for the for our students in our bachelor and our master's degree and people that are watching the recording on LinkedIn, Facebook, or on YouTube. Tell us about your experiences that led you to get into um, disaster preparedness, because I know you've got quite a wide and deep background. So, yeah, so I, uh, you know, I, was, I started out in the military, I was a military intelligence officer after a brief stint as a public affairs officer. And uh, I was, uh, I hate to age myself, but I was a junior officer um, in 2001. And uh, I had reported to the Pentagon after a, um, a three years in Japan, I reported to the Pentagon on September 4th. Uh, 2001. And so we all know what happened um, exactly a week later. And um, we were, my division were the lead planners for the intelligence director and joint staff. And so we were roped into um, building, uh, coordinating, building the disaster response, disaster preparedness and business continuity planning for uh, not only the defense intelligence agency, but also the uh, joint staff intelligence folks. So we were building, um, we were refurbishing established um, business continuity relocation centers, but also building new ones um, in support of the Secretary of Defense and the uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the other senior folks at the Pentagon. So that was my first foray into uh, into the disaster preparedness emergency response world. And then um, in many organizations, especially in the military, once you have some some experiences, you're stuck with that. So in the course of my normal intelligence duties, um, you know, they would ask, hey, does anyone have business continuity experience? Because <laughs> our mm. X center is very vulnerable. And so like, yeah, I do. Okay, you're now in charge of this. So, um, so um, a, a few brief stints in the um, assignments in the military um, as additional duties doing business continuity planning and, and disaster, disaster preparedness. I was really interested to read your article when you're talking about red, red teaming. So what led you to the topic of red teaming and tell us about it? Sure. So I, uh, I've never served on a red team. So I just want to um, put that caveat out there. Uh, but I um, I was a consumer of various red team products in my right. uh, long intelligence career. So I saw um, what worked, what didn't work, and became interested in the concept. And, you know, there are certain things that you should and should not do uh, if you're providing red team services to any organization, right? So I, um, so with that experience in mind, you know, I, you know, I left the military a few years ago and um, my first time really using it 
outside the military was when I did that uh, presentation at the Global Security Exchange. So um, I remember um, I looked back on my experience being a consumer for a team and, and asked myself, how can this help um, mm. with, with the Olympics uh, coming up? And so mm. that, that's how I, uh, um, I got around to write in the article because I looked at on that look back on that experience and a couple of things I did uh, with the red team. So tell us about that when you're using the concept of the red team thinking about the Olympics and um, the security exchange what were some of the things that really stuck out to you that need to be considered? Sure. So, and by the way, uh, for those who don't know, the Global Security Exchange or GSX is the largest uh, international security conference in the world. So um, it's, uh, it changes location every year, but about 20, 25,000 people attend every year. So one thing that stuck out to me was, um, was how uh, in 1972, the Munich Olympics, uh, there is a, there is a, police psychologist, Munich police psychologist, who came up with various scenarios that basically, he came up with 26 scenarios. A lot of work, 26 scenarios. Uh, and number 21 matched exactly what happened um, during the Olympics, that, that tragic yeah. event where, um, you know, about a dozen Israeli, um, uh, a dozen members of the Olympic Israeli Olympic uh, team died, mm. coaches and, and athletes, and then the failed hostage attempt. Uh, so uh, this police psychologist, Mr. Sieber, um, he had um, he had provided this uh, this scenario plan and to the Olympics to the police chief, who was then in charge of the Olympics. Nothing like you see today with that, you know thousands of huge security infrastructure. And uh, it was kind of behooved and, uh, and not listened to because uh, it was groupthink and oh, people don't attack the Olympics, right? And it turns out that's exactly what happened. So as I was looking forward to, um, to the Tokyo Olympics, I figured, you know, maybe it could serve, uh, maybe the lessons learned from the Munich Olympics can serve um, as conserve the current the Olympics in Tokyo, which at the time was two years away. Uh, one of the concepts, and actually the red team and I did, none of them actually focus on the type of a terrorist attack that most people expected, right? So for example, uh, one of my four main uh, scenarios, if you will, was uh, what would happen if Robella were to break out in the Olympics. And most people around the world are, depending on where you are around the world, are, are immunized against rubella. Mm. But yeah. at the time, um, there were huge breakouts. There were epidemics happening in some parts of Asia, especially China and wow. some parts of Africa, right? And even so, a couple of countries in Europe. So my red team and um, my one man <laughs> red team actually looked at the threats, vulnerabilities, consequences, and how to mitigate those for rubella and, and a couple other, a few other uh, uh, possible scenarios. So basically, I was just trying to see, hey, how um, could Olympic planning uh, be served by um, taking a red team approach or red team mindset to uh, preparations? You tell us about the red team mindset. 
So a lot of to do to be doctrinal about red teaming, you have to um, you it really involves a team, right? And there's a the 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 more people well, the more people you have up to a certain uh, amount of people, you don't want like fifty people <laughs> trying to uh, on the red team. But uh, you really ideally need a team. But a lot of times you don't have the time, the money, or resources to pull together a team with the requisite expertise. So, red team mindset, uh, and some people call it red team thinking, um, but it's trying to uh, incorporate as much of that doctrine and and uh, thinking into your processes, right? And practices, practices. So for example, there are all kinds of cognitive biases that humans have and we don't realize we have them. So as you're thinking about how to prepare for disasters and emergencies, um, you try to be conscious of cognitive biases that can affect the way you think. So for, for example, availability biases is one of my favorite. And uh, that's based in a nutshell, that's when, you know, significantly, significant emotional events happen and you focus on that irrationally. So, for example, after 9-11, uh, more people died driving on highways in the U.S. than died um, in the actual terrorist attacks because they were so afraid to fly that they drove wow. long distances, right? Um, mm -hmm. That availed the bias of the terrorist attack. And... The longer, I think if you, I think anything over like a 30, 30 minute drive um, becomes more dangerous than flying in an aircraft, right? Um, and so, yes, more people died driving because they were afraid of um, aircraft terrorism than, who, than the roughly 3,000 or so who died in terrorist attacks. You mean as a consequence of it happening, people chose to drive and then the right. outcome of the more people driving, right. more people died because of that decision making. Right, exactly. Because of that oh. availability bias of being afraid of terrorist attack because of what happened on 9-11. Oh. Um, if you look at the history of uh, some psychologists looked at the historical data and realized, yeah, far more people died than normal um, on U.S. roads that year. And wow. it was directly a result of availability bias. So as you're the bread team mindset, you're trying to uh, avoid uh, biases and fallacies like that and focus on rational thought, uh, avoid and group think. Well, when it's when it's just one or two of you, it's less so group think, but you know, any all the biases that come can result from um, you know, doing the same old, same old and being um affected too much by biases. I just have a question in my mind. So when you're doing the scenario planning with your with your red team. I imagine this is how it's happening. Are you looking at the previous data like that example, or are you generating what if type of scenarios that haven't happened before, but trying to brainstorm what could happen, or is it both? It, it's uh, it, it's both. So what, what you're trying to do is um, th that's this is the toughest part in my opinion by far of, of red teaming, and I mentioned things that I've seen not work well as I was an officer, military officer, um, looking at red team reports. So you have to think outside the box, but 
it has to be the scenarios have to be plausible, right? And so um, I'll use North Korea as an example. If you um, a red team scenario where Kim Jong Un um, invaded Japan, right? Ground and you know amphibious assault on Japan. Um, highly unlikely, even probable that would happen for all kinds of reasons, right? Um, and so, as if I was a if I was red team, and I'd, I'd want to toss that out later on in the stages after the red team, and okay, we develop five scenarios, or we brainstorm say twenty scenarios. Let's toss out a North Korean amphibious invasion of Japan because, for various reasons, that's just improbable, right? And so um, you're you're looking at past events, but um, you don't focus on past events because then you you know that's right. one of the biases uh, anchor anchor bias is what it's called, right? And mm. so uh, that's the toughest part. What's what? So, for example, in my um, in my presentation on the Olympics, um, I made sure that um, the scenarios were all plausible, right? So, for example, I mentioned rubella. Um, one of the scenarios was uh, heat wave, right? Um, and so if you look at what happened in 2017, 2018, record, uh, record extreme temperatures in Japan during the summer, uh, the Olympic organizers has insisted on the summer games uh, on um, July, August timeframe for the games, uh, even though uh, the previous games in Japan and then um, South Korea were moved later on in the year because of the heat. And I got to tell you, I lived in Japan for three years. Japan is one of the, if possibly the hottest place I've ever lived. Wow. Right. Yeah. Um, Tampa is up there too, but Tokyo, Japan is one of the hottest places, top two I've ever lived. So thinking that experience, like, okay, um, this extreme heat, uh, spectators are passing out, dying. That was plausible because if you look at the number of deaths in um, over the last few years in Japan during the summer, um, the record number of deaths and hospitalizations, right? And so, yeah, that's the hardest part is finding the balance between no one's thought of, no one has thought about this yet, but it's plausible. Mm. Yeah, in your article, you also talk about the. Um the three types of um, activities, right. so vulnerability probes, simulations, and alternative analysis. Can you just talk us through those? Sure. So uh, the one most people are familiar with are, is uh, uh, vulnerability probes, also called penetration testing. And uh, the, cyber, the cyber folks listening uh, to this, they're well aware of that. Uh, maybe less familiar some people are the physical uh, red team and their physical uh, penetration testing. And so you'll have a company that will pay someone like me or someone else, uh, sometimes former, you know, special ops guys to go and say, hey, can you penetrate, try to penetrate our factory or our headquarters building? Um, and sometimes they combine the two. Uh, can you try to penetrate cyber or Wi-Fi network while you try to break into the building? And sometimes mm. some red some penetrating testers, they'll te they'll dress up as painters or maintenance people and try to get in. I've heard some really wild stories. Uh, and then uh, the second um, type is less is less well known, 
is uh, simulations. Uh, and then New York Police Department uh, is really good at this. And basically it's a table. The military and some government agencies call it a tabletop. And you right. get all the leaders in a room and you, um, you know, uh, an exercise controller will throw out um, some organizations call it injects or basically a script that says um, uh, hurricane has just made landfall X place or uh, water has been contaminated. What do you do now? So in my article, I, I mentioned the example of uh, the Pope's visit to New York where right. um, they, you know, had a scenario where uh, hurricane land, basically their air support assets were, were grounded. And then finally, the third uh, least familiar to most people is, uh, and one, and I think it's my favorite, is alternative analysis. And this is basically that those plausible scenarios. So for example, my Olympics uh, scenarios, uh, that's an example of alternative analysis, right? Uh, the CIA, a couple CIA uh, versions of this have been leaked. One was in Afghanistan and the other was on, uh, uh, I forget what the other one was, but one was in Afghanistan. And so basically it's providing something that you probably won't see in a normal, usual intelligence product because you're thinking outside the box and it's not based on necessarily information you've collected. It's based on, hey, what are some plausible scenarios? Uh, what would, what should policymakers or decision makers be thinking about, right? So a real world example, um, uh, the company I'm with now, Blue Glacier, uh, we did one on the the um, what would happen if uh, anti the anti-vax community uh, combined with you know large basically cyber attacks and mm. combined strengths with uh, strength with the far right, right right and so we walked through specific scenarios like cyber attacks on the um, on the vaccine infrastructure, mm. on distributors like uh, FedEx, UPS, and so forth. And in our alternative analysis, we actually, so, for lack of a better term, support and evidence. For example, there was, um, it seemed like a cyber attack initially, but most likely it was just an accidental um, release of malware that was previously used in the cyber attack. And so that shut down um, distribution um, and flights for, you know, a few hours, right? And so uh, what we offered were some supporting evidence of past things that happened to prove the plausibility of what we were saying. And over the last several weeks, if not a couple of months, we've seen scenarios eerily similar to what we mentioned in our alternative analysis. Right. You also mentioned your article about the failure of imagination. Talk about yeah. that and its role that it plays. Oh, yeah. Uh, we saw that with uh, uh, the COVID is a perfect example of that. And, you know, and I, it, it baffles me whenever uh, an executive says, oh, um, we could never have foreseen the pandemic and everything that happened. It was a black swan event. And yeah, that's, that means you really weren't paying attention 
and you really you abrogate your responsibilities as a senior executive, right? Because if you look at uh, what's happened over the last twenty years with SARS-CoV, that was the hmm. that was SARS-CoV before SARS-CoV two, which is COVID nineteen, um, and uh, the MERS breakout, uh, the flu pandemic. Um, I think in 2009, it killed a quarter million people. Uh, and some of these diseases have fatality rates as high as 90% Ebola, right? And mm. so, you know, imagine if these had spread more. And so remember, uh, COVID has a pretty low fatality rate. It's just, um, but a lot of people have died because it's, um, it's easily, you know, it spreads very easily. If some of these, if some versions of, of MERS, SARS, uh, the flu, um, some variant had spread as much as COVID, we'd be in even worse shape than we are in COVID right now. So there were indicators all along. So um, when a family member of mine, March, February, March last year, mentioned, yeah, uh, she works for a federal uh, agency, uh, they basically sent everyone home, but she was relaying to me how she and other coworkers are having major problems setting up their remote computers, you know, like the, with the VPN and security and all that. And I, I remember telling her, like, why did your agency not exercise this like 10 years ago? Right. Failure of imagination. Right. Yeah. I just want to change tack a little bit. And you did mention about uh, natural disasters and climate change in your article as well. And you mentioned heat wave a few minutes ago as well. And so in New Zealand, when we have a heat wave, we think, okay, it's going to be a little bit warm. And so we think about what's happening and going to happen to us right. in terms of what we know from the past. So we might make sure that we have some sunblock, <laughs> we might make sure we've got some cold brews in the fridge, getting ready for a heat wave coming. But we don't think someone could die from this. So maybe the, the terminology, the taxonomy, needs to be developed so people and emergency responders and those who are broadcasting the early warning alerts use a different language that people understand, okay, this is different. And do you think that because of climate change and the, the greater extremes that are happening in weather, that there needs to be a new way of expressing and communicating what's happening? Uh, without a doubt. And the only reason I say that is... Um, I've the in the U.S. and most likely other countries too. But I'm familiar with the U.S. The meteorologists here, the National Weather Service, and uh, some of the local, some of the more senior local meteorologists. Um, they over the last I don't know 20, 30, 40 years, they have been um, they have gone through transitions where they focus a lot on how. Uh, threats and risks, consequences, potential consequences are communicated to the public. So it's fascinating to hear um, hear them talk about this. And uh, I listened to an interview just a few weeks ago where, to this day, um, National Weather Service and other um, and other meteorologists are working exactly on this. Like, okay, do we use right. color coding and so forth? So I think New Zealand... Um, is probably in the same place as the U.S. Like, how do we, how do we um, better communicate risk and threats? Uh, you know, uh, a lot mm. of people 
don't realize that decades ago we didn't have the cone. You know, you see the cone, the hurricanes and stuff. That was brand new uh, at some point. I forget exactly what decade it was, but that didn't exist like in the 40s and 50s, right? And so mm. it hasn't been around a lot. And that was revolutionary when that came out. And that helped a lot to communicate risk. However, some people are still confused by it because they think, okay, they look at that middle of the cone think, okay, if I'm outside of this, that doesn't, I'll be fine. Like, no, that's not how it works. So um, it doesn't surprise me that uh, that uh, New Zealand, like the U.S., is trying to figure out how do we communicate uh, risks uh, better to the non-technical, to the people who are not climate scientists or meteorologists. And by the way, um, love New Zealand, one of my one of my best trips ever. Uh, when I was uh, stationed in Hawaii, I spent uh, the end of the year, New Year's Eve time frame there. So I love the country. And so, yeah, um, even even places that are near parrot that are almost like paradise, like New Zealand, are suffering from uh, climate change. Mm. Casey, I really want to thank you for giving us your time and sharing your thinking. Uh, especially from the article, I just, as soon as I read that, I thought I've got to get Casey on the video cast. Our students need to hear about this. How can people get hold of you? What's the best way to do that if they want to engage with you? Sure. Uh, on uh, LinkedIn, I am uh, K.Campbell. Uh, and yeah, just just put me uh, put that in and uh, put in CPP That's uh, or CBCP. Uh, those are my two certifications. You'll find me instantly on Twitter. I, th I think it's uh, K Campbell underscore risks, uh, R-I-S-K-S. And uh, yeah, you could find me there too. Awesome. Casey, thank you so much for your time. And for everybody else, if you're watching the recording and for our students as well, and for those working in emergency management, uh, if you'd like to improve your qualifications, maybe you have a bachelor degree and you'd like to get your master's done, uh, but in a new innovative way, such as we're doing using technology to make sure learning is anywhere, anytime and self-paced and our accreditation with Texas A&M University System and also NOCN in the UK, would love for you to reach out to us, uard.ac.nz or uard org. We'd love to connect with you. Thanks so much, Casey. Have a great day. Thanks, Dr. Hanson. My pleasure. Take care.